today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Accolades and, and, and testimonials uh, continue to pour in uh, about the death of uh, John McCain, of course, who passed away over the weekend at age 81 uh, from brain cancer. Former presidents, politicians, and many others from around the world have issued remembrances and condolences to the late senator. Uh, President Trump issued a one-line tweet uh, offering thoughts and prayers to the family. It mentioned nothing about McCain himself. And there's an interesting twist uh, on that uh, with the White House property that we'll get to in just a couple of minutes. Joining us to talk about the legacy of uh, what many consider to be an outstanding and maybe one of the last of the lions in the Senate, Claire Finkelstein, Algeron Biddle Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me again. This is very difficult to, to try to, I guess, characterize and capsulize a man's career uh, as, as widespread and as, as divergent as John McCain's was. But let's talk about John McCain, the politician, uh, and, and his legacy. How do you see, how, do you, how will history remember this man? Well, John McCain was, for the most part, an extraordinary individual of principle. He was not afraid to reach across the aisle. He made up his own mind about things. He often took a position that had people very surprised, particularly Republicans. Uh, but he was enough of a Republican to really uh, tow the party line in many instances. Uh, one felt that he towed it only when he thought it was right. And uh, that's uh, quite a stark contrast to Republicans, most Republicans today, uh, who are in the House and Senate, and, and so he really, uh, the memory of McCain and the focus on his career in these several days in the wake of his passing will hopefully have a good impact. What happened uh, to, to, to the political genre? I mean, you know, we've talked about, I know when Ted Kennedy passed away, uh, just actually just celebrated the anniversary of that death some days ago, too. Uh, they were a different brand, a different breed of, of politician, uh, those two, and, and many like them of that ilk, uh, that would reach across the aisle, that would work collaboratively to make things work. That 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 seems to be uh, something that, that just doesn't seem to happen anymore, if at all. It's pretty rare these days, and there still are Republicans, moderate Republicans, who are willing to do that, and Democrats who are willing to do that as well. Um, but they don't seem to be succeeding in this political environment. So if you compare uh, current Republicans to someone like Jeff Flake, who was similar to some extent to John McCain and, and was very close to McCain, of course, uh, who won't be uh, running again. They seem to be drummed out of this political environment, and it's unclear why. Voters seem to be unsubtle in their assessment of candidates and uh, our politics have become quite extreme and bifurcated. But, but McCain resisted the politics of polarization, didn't he? He did to some extent, and he was as close to many Democrats as he was to Republicans and didn't hesitate to speak out very clearly when he didn't agree with something. There's that famous moment uh, during his presidential uh, campaign, the second one, uh, against uh, Obama when a female uh, agitator in the crowd or someone asking a question said, uh, I don't trust Obama, he's an Arab. And McCain took the microphone back from her and said, no, ma'am. 
He's not an Arab. He's a family man. He's a good person. We just happen to disagree on substance. And uh, that was a moment in politics and on many other occasions uh, during that campaign. He said favorable things about his opponent, spoke about respecting him, and just talked about substantive differences with the candidate. Uh, we don't see that kind of talk anymore. Well, the easy thing to do there, and you know, would simply have been to acquiesce to that and say, "Yeah, you're right." He's the, and, uh, and give and we see so much of that going on these days. But I thought that moment, and I do recall that one, Claire, uh, in a similar situation actually, the night he uh, gave his his concession speech when Obama did win, uh, where he had to quiet the crowd down and say, "No, no, we don't want any more of that." Uh, it was. Uh, I I think those were moments that really defined John McCain as a politician. Well, that's right, and every time he did that those of us who are moderate in our thinking and focus on the substantive issues really um, respected him more and more uh, for his taking those positions. But it may have cost him politically, and we've seen how President Trump was able to stoke the flames of resentment and paranoia and anger. Uh, John McCain could easily have tapped into that, which was the sentiment that that woman was voicing. I don't trust him. He's an Arab. Uh, and, of course, we know that uh, President Trump did uh, engage in just that sort of attack on Obama when he claimed that he wasn't an American citizen and so on. So um, McCain really resisted taking advantage of these extremist and alt-right sentiments. It just shows you they were there to be uncovered even back then. To be sure, though, I, I mean, as we look at uh, John McCain's legacy, he was ab absolutely a small c conservative. I mean, and and expressed those conservative values oftentimes. I mean, he succeeded Barry Goldwater, uh, of course, in Arizona, and and people, my many, I, I think, Claire, when you look back at this historically, thought, well, he was he was a, a carbon copy of Goldwater, at least philosophically, at that time. No, I think that Goldwater was, in the end, uh, more conservative than McCain was and uh, spoke to a more conservative base. Uh, but, of course, you know, the politics in Arizona, nobody really liberal was going to survive as a Republican coming out of Arizona. So it's not surprising that those were McCain's sentiments. But, for example, uh, on certain issues, he really took the liberal position. So having been tortured himself, for example, he... Uh, was actually quite dedicated to fighting the U.S.'s use of torture and uh, was working with liberal groups uh, for a long time to try to speak out against torture and working with Democrats uh, to make very clear that he opposed that. And that was a non-negotiable issue with him. Uh, that was something that he was going to take the liberal position on, no matter what anybody thought of him for that. John, Cain, John McCain, the statesman, is, is an interesting story as well, Clara. This is a guy who traveled the world uh, talking to other world leaders, had the respect of other world leaders. Uh, not all senators take advantage of, of that position, but McCain seemed to relish it. Well, that's right, and he had that respect. He had uh, an incredible amount of gravitas when he went about the world and spoke to foreign leaders, and uh, people really listened to him. He had earned that respect through many, many years in the Senate and being a moderate and sensible voice, uh, and world leaders knew that. 
And really, uh, it is sort of surprising that he never became president. Uh, I think he would have been a very good president. Uh, and uh, it's, I mean, Obama was uh, an excellent statesman, an excellent president as well. It may be that he never had the gravitas abroad that uh, that McCain actually managed to have as senator. Uh, but still, uh, that was a race, if you look at Obama and McCain, uh, in that kind of race where you couldn't go too far wrong. <laughs> Two men of principle talking about the issues and how far our politics have come since then. Well, some would suggest that his choice as a vice presidential nominee may have actually been a detriment to him in that campaign, but... Uh... Uh, I guess there's the pretty polarized opinions on that as well. But politics, Claire, historically is time and place, isn't it? And, and the two times that John McCain, McCain took a run at uh, the presidential, well, he got the nomination the second time, but the first time was, of course, against George W. Bush. And uh, he surprised Bush, of course, by winning the New Hampshire primary and, and probably you know scared the daylights out of the, out of the Bush team at that stage. But they came at him, uh, guns a-blazing. The Bush legacy and the Bush dynasty came at him and, and crushed him, basically, for the rest of those primaries. Well, that's right. And then the first run uh, against Bush, he really was not able to marshal the uh, financial resources. Uh, and he just did not, his campaign just basically ran out of money. And he kept going, uh, and New Hampshire was a surprise, but he just didn't, wasn't able to pull together the funding. Uh, in the second race against Obama, uh, I think you're really right about his choice of vice presidential candidate, because Sarah Palin was a disaster. It was a disaster for his campaign. Uh, she just was completely unprepared to run at that level. Uh, and came across as completely ignorant. For example, when she was asked uh, in this famous interview with Katie Couric uh, what books she liked to read or what newspapers she liked to read, she couldn't name a single one. Uh, and she sort of stumbled on that and really came across as someone who was not very bright uh, and then whose politics were bizarre. And I, I think that really may have cost McCain that election. Well, as you've heard some of the stories after the fact, too, I know that uh, Steve Schmidt, who was a Republican strategist who worked on that campaign, uh, has told some stories, of course, about Sarah Palin. I, he's a great admirer still of, of John McCain's, obviously, uh, right. not so much of uh, Sarah Palin, and uh, I right. guess the truth has come out. But isn't it interesting, though, that uh, that as John McCain prepared his, his own funeral, as, as uh, he was uh, in his final days, of course, in Arizona, and, and talked to his family and to his wife, Cindy, about what he'd like to see happen, uh, the two men that defeated him uh, in his run for the presidency are two of the men that are going to eulogize him. Well, that is very interesting, and it was uh, typical magnanimity on the part of McCain to suggest that they might actually do that. He wanted to show respect to those who had beaten him, <laughs> uh, to those who he had political differences with, but I also wonder whether or not it wasn't typical John McCain and sort of poking his finger in the president's eye a little bit to, to say, you know, these are the men I admire, um, despite my differences with them, but you, President Trump, I cannot. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, that, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on here, too, because as we watched the coverage on Saturday uh, with the announcement of McCain's death, 
Uh, we waited, I guess, just to see what kind of reaction was going to come out of the White House. Uh, there has been, to my knowledge, as of uh, 9 o'clock this morning anyway, Claire, uh, no official statement from the White House. There was a one-line tweet uh, from the president that evening, basically uh, offering thoughts and prayers to the family, mentioning nothing about McCain. Uh, the flag at the White House was at half staff on Saturday. Apparently this morning it no longer is. It's back up to full staff, although right. just about every other flag in Washington is still at half staff. Uh, it's, it speaks volumes about that president uh, as opposed to about John McCain. Well, and there was the hideous comments uh, by Trump attacking uh, McCain for having his plane shot down uh, in Vietnam and and his comment that, you know, uh, he he liked people who um, who whose planes weren't shot down, who weren't captured, in fact. I like people who weren't captured, uh, is what he said. And from then on, the relationship between the two men really, really soured. And I think that the president uh, is jealous of him, jealous of the respect that he's held in. He can't tolerate that anyone else would be lionized like this. And I'm sure that these, uh, this week-long remembrance of John McCain is just driving President Trump crazy. Uh, in addition, it seems there was a statement that was prepared for him by his handlers uh, that he was supposed to issue, talking about the heroism of McCain and what he contributed to the country, and he personally decided not to issue that statement, instead just to issue this individual tweet. And what the president really doesn't understand is that showing one's respect to those who have been heroic for the country, who truly have dedicated their lives and have sacrificed for the country, makes him bigger, not smaller. But it's impossible for him to recognize that. Well, this is the second uh, prominent uh, Republican family now that is uh, dealing with the death, of course, the Bush family some time ago, too, where they made it pretty clear that they didn't want uh, the president anywhere near them during that and it seems as if the same message is coming from uh, the McCain family now with uh, what's going to be happening over the next three or four days. Well, that's right, and there was very little in the way of respect from President Trump uh, for Barbara Bush, and the same sort of feeling, the enormous love for her and the country and the respect for her, and the president just could not bring himself to praise her, to show his respect, uh, and to sort of mourn with the country. I think that's one of the jobs of a president, of course, when there's been a loss that people really feel across the country. I think there really is personal sadness around losing Senator McCain. It's part of the job of the president to mourn with the country uh, and to say, I resonate with that. I feel what you feel. And it's something that he's just unable to do. Well, it was something that uh, Ronald Reagan was certainly good at uh, about feeling that, 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 that vibe uh, and, and that empathy, of course, with the American people. Uh, that was one of his great oratory skills, of course. But we've always seen, uh, in times of, of trouble and in sorrow, uh, bipartisan approaches to this. Uh, the Clintons and the Bushes, the Obamas and the Bushes, and others that, that walk together in these situations. And clearly, I guess that's a tradition that's being broken with this administration. That's right, and he doesn't reach across the aisle in any instance, and in fact only praises those who praise him or those who have supported him. And so there's no sense that he understands what can be good 
for the country or who can be good for the country, but only who can be good for him or who's supportive of him. That's a real loss of leadership, a failure of leadership on the president's part. He needs to be able to identify heroes, true heroes that people can look up to and respect, um, rather than evaluating everyone's contribution by how it impacts him. Claire Fickelstein. Claire, thank you as always for the time today and for your uh, thoughts on this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Please welcome to the program Genevieve Tellier, who is a professor in the uh, School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. Genevieve, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. It's a pleasure. Let me, let me just, we'll back up a little bit and I'll get your reaction because we haven't talked for the last few days uh, about uh, Bernier's announcement, Maxine Bernier's announcement to leave the party. Uh, some suggested uh, the timing of that was uh, not without some strategy, of course, that he was trying to steal some of the thunder from the Conservatives. Uh, but there's mixed reviews I've heard so far about the impact that that may have long-term on the party. What are your thoughts? I also think that it's kind of mixed. We're not too sure because uh, we don't know ap- uh, as of now uh, what is it is his status about uh, creating a new party. So if he has any follower, uh, people that would join his movement. Uh, what we saw at the convention is that there were no big names that support his stance. So uh, it seems that uh, the, 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 the big names within the party uh, do not follow Bernie, so that, that's a good news for the Conservative Party. Uh, but at the same time, uh, maybe some grassroots movement could build up and, and maybe some will join his party. So this question of division within the Conservative movement is very open, it's still there, and so it could be harmful. But as of now, since we don't know exactly what kind of support Bernie has, it, it may be a bit too early to, to get a bit more sense of, of what's going on. Well, well, recent history, I guess, would give us some indication, though, wouldn't it, Genevieve? I mean, even when, when Bernier uh, ran for the, the leadership of the party, uh, when he made that announcement, I'm not so sure that too many people gave him much of a chance, figuring, okay, he's an outsider, he's not really one of the, the high-profile people in, in the Harper uh, government, but uh, he did an outstanding job of fundraising and, and came within mere percentage points of winning the thing. Yes, exactly, and I think he also touched uh, some some chords with his ideas. So, uh, saying that the conserva- conservative party was us losing touch with the base, with the conservative value, up to a point, uh, some will say yes, that's true. Uh, so you have pragmatism, which is uh, we have to win the next election and make some concession, and then go back to the true values of, uh, of uh, the conservative. And that's what happened historically in the 1990s when the movement was divided. And so you had the uh, alliance, and then you have the Reform Party that were created, and that was harmful for the conservative uh, movement. And so uh, people are questioning, are we going back to that? And yes, there are some ground with uh, with Bernie's uh, uh, initiative, and I would not diminish that for, at all. Uh, it's just that for the moment, we don't really know who wants to support or what kind of support he, he will be able to attract. Well, as you say, some of the, 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 the big leaders, the head honchos in the party, of course, are, are staying right where they are with Andrew Scheer, including Corey Tanek, of course, who actually worked on Bernier's leadership campaign. He uh, seems to be solidly in the Scheer camp mm-hmm. right now. But uh, there may be some disgruntled delegates at that convention, though, Genevieve, mm-hmm. uh, that were looking for some of that extreme right uh, policy 
making, especially when it came to things like supply management. Mm-hmm. They, they left Halifax disappointed, and more than a few of them were saying, well, maybe I'm going to look at what's, uh, what Maxime Bernier's got to offer. Yes, and so he's, uh, people will pay attention. So really, it's, it's bad news for the Conservative uh, Party and Andrew Scheer because uh, people won't listen too much to what Scheer has to say, but will also pay attention to what Bernier has to say. And as you said, we should not diminish his ability to get support. He was very effective in getting funds. Uh, he came very close to win the convention, the leadership race last time. And what this show, shows also is that uh, Scheer was not able to keep Bernier close to him. And so if you want to keep your opponent with you, you have to sometimes make some concession. And we did not see any of those concessions during the, the convention this weekend. So uh, everything that was adopted is very mainstream with what Andrew Scheer wants to propose for the next election. Um, there were nothing new. There were not uh, big events uh, so nothing unexpected that we saw at the convention. The, uh, the the story, of course, about the Conservative Party, and I guess this goes all the way back to the alliance, and even when Stephen Harper took over the United Conservative Party, was this whole idea about hidden agenda. And you know what? If they ever form government, they're going to take us way over to the right, to the alt-right. We didn't call it that back in those days, but that was always the concern that the opposition parties were raising. Is, is that going to be an ongoing battle for them, Genevieve, that they're always going to have to say, no, 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 we're not that party anymore? Uh, yes, it's going to be an issue because uh, there are many fractions within that party that want to push them to that right. And so we have the social conservative, which we did not hear too much during the convention, probably because of the Bernier story. But now we have Maxime Bernier also. So uh, they, they have to, to appeal to those groups also if they want to be elected. And so, yes, uh, that will also be a kind of a cloud uh, over the head of Andrew Scheer, and he's going to have to fight hard to to get rid of this image. Now, I think he did succeed up to a point during the convention because he did show his own personality. So we were waiting for that since his election as a leader. We were not too sure who's Andrew Scheer. We did not have a big national uh, event, and so uh, he did not draw attention uh, nationally to know what kind of leader he's going to be. And he shows that he wanted to be a positive guy, a middle-class guy. So he talked about his own origin, where he come from, his family, and he wants to show he's a good opposition to Trudeau's uh, own personality. So we did see somewhat of, uh, of, uh, of an identity from shared during the convention. And, and how important was that, uh, to, to be able to check off all those boxes and, 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 and shine the light on Andrew Scheer instead of just uh, that guy that won the leadership last year? It is important. It is very important. I don't, I'm not sure he succeeds uh, fully in the sense that I don't think that many Canadians pay attention to the convention this weekend. It's still the summer. The, the election is in more than a year. Uh, so I think he pleased his base. He pleased the conservative member. He was reassuring. He did show unity, even though we don't, we're not sure about Bernier. But that's also, uh, if he wants to apply to outside the conservative movement, outside the conservative party, he has to do more. Uh, he has to show something to offer. And I'm not sure that his idea, uh, because his main message was, we are on the wrong track and we're going to go back on the right track. Okay, so what's the wrong track we're heading now? It's not very clear for me. So what kind of message, except a positive message, do you want to present? 
so it, I, I could say it was a good start, but I don't think it was the, the work is over. It's just starting, and it's going to be it's going to have to be more present um, in the media nationally to show his kind of leadership and show that he has a real opposition to show uh, towards Trudeau. And now they were all saying all the right things at the convention, Genevieve. That you know the Bernier thing doesn't really matter. Uh, we're united. We're strong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But they've got to be looking over their shoulder right now. I mean, even even when Stephen Harper united the Conservative Party and, and took over the leadership, there was still that concern, of course, about the extreme right. But but basically, they had nowhere else to go. I mean, you know, Harper yeah. tried to govern from the the middle, well, the middle right really never went to that extreme right, figuring okay, those people are going to vote for us anyway because there's nowhere nowhere else for them to put their vote. Uh, they may have an option now, though. Yes, and I think that was the main priority of Harper during all his tenure was to keep the party united. And so he, he was very careful to please those uh, those groups that may be inclined to create their own political party, which Bernier did or will do eventually. And so even for Stephen Harper, that was the biggest challenge he faced. And once, uh, when he left the party, many credited him to be able to unite the party. And so it seems to be very difficult to keep the Conservative Party united, uh, not just federally, I would say, also look at the uh, provincial level in Ontario. I mean, we'll see what Doug Ford does, but there are different fractions within the party also. So it's very strong. It's been there for many years. Uh, you have division about ideas, but you have also division uh, geographically speaking, so Western Canada versus Central or Eastern Canada. We'll see how this uh, unfolds. So that was the main priority of Harper. And um, it seems that that may be a failure up to a point for Andrew Shear up to now, is that, well, this unity is not as strong as it was under <coughs> sorry Stephen Harper. And so they must be very worried. I, I agree with you, um, because it's a serious treat, because, yes, if there is an alternative for dissatisfied conservative, uh, that's not good news for the United Conservative Party. And, and that's obviously a question I guess we're all looking for the answer to, is just how fractious they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the easy analogy here, and you alluded to this a couple of minutes ago, uh, Genevieve, uh, was, was what happened in the 1990s, of course, with the advent of the Reform Party. Uh, but there was a lot more going on uh, with the Conservatives at that stage. Uh, it's much different scenario than it is now. I mean, the party, of course, was was recently decimated in a federal election. Mm-hmm. There was the, also the formation of the Bloc Québécois, which which gutted the, the Quebec arm of the Conservative Party to a great extent. Uh, and then, of course, Preston Manning came along with the Reform Party. Uh, we don't see that same scenario, but is it just as dangerous that the same thing could happen? I agree with you. It's different, but yes, it could be as dangerous. So we'll see how successful Bernie could be with that. Um, the, the biggest difference for me is the division that was uh, West versus Central Canada or Eastern Canada at the time in the 1990s. And so, yes, as you said, the Bloc Québécois was established. Then you had a reform in the West. And so I don't see that big division, geographical division, as the main driver of what we see now. It's more about ideas. It's more about left versus right. Uh, what's the role of the state within the economy? And Bernier was uh, very clear on that. He doesn't like the, the, the values offered by the Conservative Party. Is no longer a right-wing party in his view. And so he wants to push back to what is really at the core of a right-wing party, less government, less control, less red tape, free market, uh, all those ideas. And so how popular it is, I'm not sure 
uh, overall in Canada because uh, the ideas of uh, Justin Trudeau and also uh, the NDP, which are much more left-wing leaning, are very popular for the moment. So, but I see a kind of div- division between left and right, as we saw in Ontario during the last election, as we do see it in New Brunswick now with the election, Quebec also, um, and so that may be the difference compared to the 1990s. But yes, it's a division, division of idea. So the kind of consensus that we had historically in Canada, I'm not sure we see it as strong uh, nowadays. The irony, of course, in Bernie's comments is, is I don't know that you can make a strong argument that the Conservative Party was ever a, a, a very right-wing party. I mean, there's always been those elements in that party, uh, but they've never catered to them to the extent that uh, maybe some provincial governments have, but never on the federal scene. Uh, and, and you can go back to beyond Stephen Harper to Brian Mulroney and many others that understood that that you know there's the the middle ground seems to be the comfort zone for Canadian voters. Yes, and I think that at the time the Canadian population was less divided on those issues, and so it, it was easier to come up with a common, as you say, a common ground, a common idea of what's good. Uh, it was very difficult to see a difference between the, then the Progressive, Conservative, and Liberal Party, except on the margin. Uh, but yes, it seemed to be more united. But what we see. Now, not just in Canada, elsewhere, in other countries also, it's a much more division and, uh, about ideas. Uh, we'll see at the same time, so I don't know if there's a cause-to-effect uh, relationship, but we see also a bigger division, economically speaking. The richer, the rich are getting richer, the poor, poorer. And so that may taint our political view on that. So for me, yes, there is that division, less consensus in Canada that we used to be uh, used, uh, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. The uh, those who would be dismissive of Bernier and this idea about forming another party to, to appeal to that to that right wing element uh, are probably overlooking the fact that I don't, I don't think anybody has any expectation that that if there was a new party or whether he joins the Libertarians or whatever his, his strategy is at this stage, uh, there's no expectation I think that they're going to win a, a handful of seats here, but they could erode the conservative vote in each riding, couldn't they? Yes, they could. They very much could. And that could be the yes. difference between defeat and victory. Yes, it is. And uh, it's going to be probably a tight uh, result in the next election. And so, yes. Uh, and people are still approving what the liberals are doing, maybe not as much as uh, maybe a year ago, but still there is some support. So you need every vote. And yes, having a few seats lost, that's the difference between uh, uh, winning and losing the, the election. And then again, this ghost of being divided and not able to find unity and a Common, a common uh, trend, a common idea to offer to voters and say, yes, we represent the majority of, of Canadians and uh, uh, we'll establish um, good policy. And so that's, that's missing. And so this, this idea of uh, division, uh, as I said before, is really not good news for the Conservatives. How difficult is it going to be for Andrew Scheer to identify and to, and to brand himself to Canadian voters? Not very difficult, I think, because I, I, I guess that the, with their own internal poll, uh, they know exactly what the majority of Canadians want. It's going to be difficult for them to offer solutions that are not similar to those offered by the Liberals, uh, with a tent from a, 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 a flavor from the conservative view. And so that's difficult. Just give you an example. So during the, the weekend, they say they will scrap the price on carbon taxes, so scrap the carbon tax. Okay, fine. It's not a conservative uh, uh, policy. But what do you do with the environment? The environment is uh, it's quite high on the agenda of many Canadians. And so what's your policy on that? What's a conservative policy on the environment? Because carbon tax 
tax was pretty much conservative. I mean, it's uh, uh, not too much regulation, some kind of regulation through market price, but you don't force uh, businesses to be greener. You you let the market force uh, uh, react to, to, to some form of taxation. So if you don't use that, what else do you do? And so that's the kind of uh, challenges they're going to face. It's how to offer something that uh, address current uh, issue important to Canadian, but from a conservative angle, that makes sense. And currently, uh, they are advocating yes for lower taxes, uh, no carbon uh, tax, uh, new pipelines. Well, all those things will have some impact on the budget. And so you want to have, at the same time balance the books, and and it's not easy to to come up with something coherent. So so that will be one of the biggest challenge. Genevieve Tellier. Uh, Genevieve, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Greatly appreciated this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A big weekend for Brooke Henderson winning the CP Women's Open, ending a 45-year drought uh, since the Canadian has actually won that tournament. We have been uh, celebrating, I guess, uh, Brooke's career uh, since she's come into national prominence over the last little while, and this is another feather in her cap. But, but clearly, uh, the, the implications for this uh, for Canadian golf, for women's golf, uh, need to be discussed. Scott Radley, the host of the Scott Radley Show, and of course, uh, sports uh, columnist with the Spectator, joins us. Uh, a rare in studio visit today because you're working today. Yeah, well, I mean, you work every day, but yes, I will be on right after this. Actually, filling in for the other Scott. So just stay right in that chair. Exactly, I won't the, move for the next three hours. Uh, first of all, let's let's talk about the accomplishment itself. Uh, this was this was a tough tournament for her. I mean, she she looked pretty good all the way through it, but I mean, this this was in Regina, where apparently it's already winter. <laughs> it was like 13 it was winter deg- in June. 13 degrees and rainy. Yeah. It was not a good golf day. No, and, and a great accomplishment for her, a great finish. The, the, I mean, the hardest thing, talk to any golfer, and I've talked to enough of them, the hardest thing to do is to finish a tournament. It's, it's, I mean, it's not easy, but it's not crazy hard in the grand scheme of a golfer's existence to lead after a day or to be in the running in the top 10 after two days. But that last round when you're the leader and people are chasing you or when you're right in the mix, and especially when it's at home and you know, I mean, I don't, I didn't hear if Brooke Henderson made any comments about this, but you know that everybody there wants you to win. Of course they do. Yeah. That's, that is a level of extra pressure on top of the pressure of just the golfing and fighting off the other women and everything else. That is a, it. That's what makes it such an accomplishment. That, that is the part to me that makes this special because she was able to do that. And it's, as I say, it's double the pressure of a usual golf tournament. There's there's a process and a kind of a protocol to golf tournaments, isn't there really? You know, the, the day one is, okay, let's see what everybody's got. Uh, and I want to stay And let's close. not try and fall completely out of the mix. Yeah. Here. Let's just not screw it up on day, day one. Day two is make the cut. Yep. Day three is moving day. That's what they call it. In other words, if you're going to make a run, uh, that's the day you Put yourself do in it. position. Yeah. And then sat, and like you say, if you're, if you're there and you're in the lead, Hanging on, because everybody's coming after you that day. Yep. And, you know, there are people in any sport, you know, in, in baseball, they let the home team go last, right? They're up to bat second. And there's all kinds of theories on how that developed. A part of it is so you can know what the other team did and you have the opportunity to match that. In, you know, in, in the CFL, when you have the overtime, you have the shootout, you can, on a flip of a coin, choose, do you want to go first or second? And many teams want to go second. Because you want to know what the other side did, so they have to win. But there's a downside to that. And that is that you know what they did. And there's, again, we go back to pressure. There is now pressure knowing 
what's been done? Well, she's right at the end. You know, as the leader, as one of the leaders, she's in the she's right at the end of that tournament. So she knows what's been going on. And again, that to me adds a level of pressure that you're aware. There's there's something kind of beautiful about being unaware of what your opponents are doing and just going out there with a clear mind, knowing what they're doing. That that again makes it much tougher. And that's what she had to deal with. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about getting set up for those first couple of days. I mean, she shot back to back sixty sixes. I mean, that's that's getting it's not ready. horrible. That's getting ready. Uh, so called moving day was was her first round. Uh, but she finished strong yesterday. What was it, 65 she saw mm, yesterday? Yeah. Just incredible, in, in miserable conditions. No, she is on, and I've never experienced it in golf. We've all had it in some different facet of our life where you just feel it. Whatever the it is, you yeah. feel it, and you just got this sense that she was feeling it. Whatever that mysterious, psychological, emotional, mental thing is, she was feeling it, and you could tell, and, and it didn't disappear. And the amazing thing about this is as, as great a golfer as she is, and even every good golfer next weekend, it could be gone. Mm-hmm. She could, she could shoot 10 over par every day next weekend. And we don't know, but for this tournament, she found it and held on to it and ended up winning. How much pressure is on? I mean, obviously she's focused, she's a professional and she's darn good at what she does. But when the whole gallery is, is cheering you, I mean, you know, if you watch LPGA or, or any other PGA, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody's got their favorites. You know, Dustin Johnson's got his crowd. Jason Day has this crowd, et cetera. But this is like the country getting behind. This is it's not akin to what, what Mike Weir used to go through when he was playing on the tour on a regular basis, mm-hmm. where any time there was a tournament here in Canada, uh, for instance, the year he played here at the, at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club for the Canadian Open. Well, he does every year, but I mean, when he was kind of in contention mm-hmm. there that first time it was back here or that match play against Tiger Woods. I think that was at Royal Montreal uh, mm-hmm. for that tournament. The, the pressure must be immense. Or the year that he just lost to Vijay Singh in the playoff at the Canadian oh, Open. Oh, don't even bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's, that, there, those, there is one golfer on the planet, well, there's two, uh, one who's playing. Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods are the only two people, male or female, who who know what it's like to play in front of massive galleries every single time they go out and play. It doesn't matter if it's their home tournament, doesn't matter if what. Tiger Woods plays, the entire gallery is following him, minus about 17 people who have decided to look at Rory McIlroy or whoever else. But they're used to that. Brooke Henderson, while she plays, when she plays in Canada, gets that. And, and also, uh, there's no way around it. The LPGA galleries are not the same as PGA galleries, but... When she plays in Canada, she has the majority of the people following her. That's not something you get used to all the time. You get more used to it as you play more. But as I say, there are only two people who wake up in the morning and know that I'm going to have 25,000 people staring at me everything I do for this day. She's, so she, you also have to deal with that part where it is not your everyday life. But the, I guess it can affect you one of two ways. Because uh, we've seen it both in sports, uh, whether it's golf or hockey or anything else, when when you've got this this rush of, of uh, fandom that's just cheering you on at every every angle, uh, it it can embolden you and it can kind of just you know jack you up and get you going, or it can kind of freak oh, yeah. you out. Oh yeah, if you're going well, and again we said she had it this weekend. When you're playing well and the gallery is there and behind you, I really believe that it's a huge benefit to you. But when you're not playing well <laughs> and golf, there is nowhere to hide on a golf course. You are there by yourself. And if you tee off and drive it into the lake, there's nowhere to, it is really rough. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, Bill. Several years ago about the galleries. Now it's a little bit different, but 
Uh, I covered a pro-am before the Canadian Open at Hamilton Golf and Country Club. For those who know what that is, the, usually the Wednesday or the Tuesday before the PGA tournament, some usually men, but women as well, business leaders, whoever pay five, six, seven thousand bucks to play with a pro. And there's one or two ams, the amateurs and one pro. And I remember there was a guy who teed off and I wrote about him and I won't mention his name, A, because I can't remember him, B, because it'll be mortifying for him. Uh, and you know, they announce so that, you know, he, let's say he's, let's say Bill Kelly was the pro and the, and the, the introducer, the, the announcer goes, now on the tee from Hamilton, Ontario, Bill Kelly. And then so the, the pro tees off and he hits it 300 yards right down the middle. Well, then they say, and now from Hamilton, Ontario, Bob Schmarkola. And this poor guy, you could just see like his body, it, it almost turned to ectoplasm. Like he just had no spine. <laughs> his knees were wobbling. He takes this enormous swing. There's a huge gallery. He takes an enormous swing and it goes about seven yards. Doesn't even get off the tee box. He topped it. And you could just see he wanted to die. And he gets up and he gets his three wood or something and takes another huge swing and it goes 15 yards. And you know what? Galleries are wonderful things to get back to your point. When you do something well, you are just built up by the cheers. That guy looked like he'd paid his five or six grand. He would have rather been in getting a prostate exam that day (laughs) than to be on the course at that moment. And so you do have to deal with that either rush or that crush of, of pressure and expectations. Well, and certainly she did that over the weekend, and has done it pretty consistently. I mean, this is this is a remarkable story. And and we've seen young golfers come onto the scene and, and look pretty good, and we think, hey, boy, this is a Hall of Fame career. But then they get just kind of fade. She's not fading. She's not fading, and she is, I would argue right now, in the dis- not even in the discussion. She is clearly one of the two best Canadian golfers well, one of three uh, for different reasons. One of three best Canadian golfers ever. Mike Weir, of course, having won the Masters, you're always going to put him in that category. The other one, which is a very different scenario, and we don't have time to go into his whole story, but the other guy who you throw in is Mo Norman, for who, who was a autistic savant who never really played much on the tour because he just didn't. But there will be people who tell you he was the best golfer, best ball striker ever. Um, we'll leave him out of the discussion for a moment, even though that's, it's an interesting one to bring in. But she and Mike Weir now are the two Canadians that you could debate back and forth for a long time about who is the best Canadian golfer ever. Let's talk about Canadian golfers. Uh, there are more of them than, than ever. Uh, uh, mind you, when you, when you hear the background of some of them, it's, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's because they went to American University and a got lot. trained. Uh, as with so many other athletics, I mean, football, whatever the case might be, uh, getting that training. And it's not that we don't have great pros up here, but it just seems as if that takes those golfers that seem to have that, that potential to that next level. But you have to go south now in order to reach that level because you have to play year round and you can't do that here. And so even Mackenzie Hughes, who's a local guy, Dundas guy, who's now on the tour, has won an event, is, is, has a PGA Tour card, is playing. He went to Kent State, yeah. which is not that far south. It's in Ohio, but it's, the thing is their facility is that they can play year-round. And then they had this golf facility with, as he described it to me, I've not seen it, but like a roll-up garage door with heaters on the driving range. So they could be in a warmish situation and still, but you were still able to hit and play most of the year. And then they did tours and tournaments further south. You can't, I don't think, I don't know who the person is who could play 
four, five, six months a year, take six months off and eventually rise to this level. You just, golf is one of those things. You just have to be playing all the time in order to be good. And so, no, you, you have to now be going to an American school or being playing down in the American tour, be independently wealthy to go and fly around and play on that tour. So you, you just, I don't think a Canadian could do it just staying at home. But the, but the pros do that now. I mean, really, there's no off season for professional no. golfers anymore. Couple weeks, you, you know, they talk about well, this is the end of the last major, but but even when that's done and those tournaments, they, they go overseas. They're doing match plays uh, in different parts. There's Dubai, there's China, there's all sorts of. There's always going to be golf someplace, and, and there's always, always going to be money. Yeah, there's all like this is another part of the the equation for especially for the men right now is that there there may be more off season. There could be guys who would take more time in the off season. But you talk about Dubai or some of these other places, you get invited to come over there with a guaranteed purse and a guaranteed appearance fee. It's pretty hard to turn down checks that have a lot of zeros in them. I don't care who you are. Is that ever going to happen with women's golf? I doubt it. And uh, some people will blanch at that. I I, I look back to um, Annika Sorenstam, remember about... 15 years ago, maybe when she was the best woman in the world by far. And she, I think she played, was it not a match play tournament she had with, uh, uh Fred couple or some other, I mean, she made a, a, an attempt to really take women's golf to the next level and it didn't go so well. And there was Michelle Wee, who was a, a young 15 or 16 year old girl who was at that time miles ahead of, it seemed the rest of the women. And she made a, an attempt at coming into the men's tour and breaking through and doing, and that didn't go well. And she, that almost seemed to kind of set her way back. She's never been on the LPGA, the dominant force that everyone expected that she was eventually going to be. Uh, Brooke Henderson is a fantastic player. As I say, the best Canadian, she is not Tiger Woods at his peak. Um, she's very, very good. As I say, she's one of the best in the world. I just don't know, Bill, I don't know who is going to provide that breakthrough. I mean, even golf in general has waxed and waned in popularity, riding heavily on the fame of the superstar of its time, Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods. But when Tiger Woods is not playing now, ratings plummet. On TV, ratings plummet. Well, it tells you that you need to have, in order to have that breakthrough and pull even, you need to have that superstar athlete, the person, the personality. And I don't see that person out there yet. I don't know who that would be. But, but golf is very much like, I guess, every other sport these days now become a television sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'd love to have people at the galleries. Certainly you want to have those admissions and you've been down to the masters. You, you've seen how, how massive those crowds are, but that means nothing if the TV ratings stink and, and you've got to have the stars for that. It, it's all about money. Now. It is. And, and yet when you say the galleries don't really matter that much, financially they don't because it is TV money and sponsor money. But there's also a chicken and an egg thing here is that when you turn on your TV and you see some LPGA events and there's nobody there, you then say, that's eh, not that big a deal. Nobody watches. Who watches? I mean, if you, if you were just to tune in for the first time and see not many people there, you're going to come to the conclusion immediately. This is something that nobody cares about. Well, don't you feel, because I do when I'm turning on a tournament, even if it's the Canadian Open, and uh, and wherever they're playing it, and and you know there's somebody on the 13th tier or 13th green, 
and there's nobody around. If, if they it may looks well, small potatoes. Yeah, they, they may as well be playing a King's Force with yep. a bunch of guys, and you figure, hey, where's the crowd here? Come on, this is the national championship. Uh, and, and sadly, it's like that too often on the LPGA, and I, 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 that's not a reference to the talent level. Of course not, but it's the reality, and it's not just there. I mean, look at, all, look at other sports that have difficulty convincing people of their importance. We started the Canadian University football season this weekend with McMaster playing. Not a ton of people, a few thousand, 5,000 maybe at the game. Then you turn on and you look at Ohio State or Notre Dame or Michigan and there's 80, 90, 100,000 people. If you are an outsider just tuning in, which one do you think is the sport that matters? And it's hard to convince people when there's not people watching in person. It's hard to convince them. Yeah, And that's doubly, if not 10 times more difficult for women's sports. Yes. Then how did hockey make the breakthrough? It has 20, 20 years ago, women's hockey, people, eh, it's, well, it's, it's a viable it entity it. right it now. Does, well, Not it, to the degree of, of the men's, no. I get that. but It does at times. In the Olympics, absolutely. Yeah. In the World Championships, yes. If you have the Four Nations Cup, which is a, an annual event with Canada and the States and I think Finland and Sweden, um, yes, you will have those arenas will draw. But the National Women's Hockey League still struggles to put people in the building. It is it is a huge struggle. We've talked about it on the show, uh, just on my show just last week. Um, why is it that people, and not people all in, entirely, my question was 50%, more than 50% of our population is women. Where are the women who are watching, are coming out to watch, if only women, and I'm not suggesting that's the answer, but if only women came out to watch women's sports, you would have a huge gallery. But for whatever reason, it is a hurdle, a mental hurdle that seems to exist that they just have a hard time. WNBA is doing better, but they still, maybe 8,000 for most games, if they can get that high. I don't know the answer. I've talked, I've talked to nobody, Bill, who knows the answer. The fallback is, well, this is, this is just sexism. Well, I, I don't, there may be a hint of that. I don't buy that though. I, I really don't because we, society will support women in movies, in music, in other things if they believe that it's the thing to do, if they believe in the content, if they, if they can be sold on it, people will do it. Now, I don't know how you get over that barrier. I don't because Brooke Henderson, again, as a, as a, for Canadian golf fans, the next tournament she plays at in Canada should be jammed. But, but I don't but expect it to no, be. No, that's a, the reality. It's not going to happen. That's unfortunate. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.